0: Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Audience participation. Good. I, I didn't want to stand behind a pulpit. I kind of hopefully just wanted to have a little bit of a discussion today. Um, how many of you guys were here last week? Yes, some. Um, last week, we started sharing um, from the intent was to share from Matthew 25. Jesus shares three parables in there. He shares about the talents of the 10 not the talents the 10 yeah the parables help me out loretta the 10 virgins or bridesmaids the next parable is the 10 talents and the last story tells about the sheep and goats being separated at the judgment seat of Christ and i when brad asked me to share a few weeks ago i really was focusing on that and just really felt, um, before we even got to any of those parables, um, but particularly the one about the 10 bridesmaids or virgins, I really felt super impressed last week to just give the context for that. Uh, any of you guys that were here last week can just shout out, what was the context? What was going on? What was the backdrop and setting when Jesus began to talk about these three parables, bridesmaids, talents, and sheep and goats? What was the larger setting and context? Anybody? Anybody? Ben, were you going to say something? I wasn't. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. They just temple, like, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Did you guys hear Ben? He said, it's the last week of Jesus' life. Um, but, I mean, he is alive, but it's the last week leading up to Good Friday. He's entered in Jerusalem. It was Palm Sunday. It's probably likely Tuesday. Spent all day in the temple, clearing out the temple, teaching in parables. And as Ben said, the disciples were walking away. They were walking away from the temple, and they're like, Wow, Jesus, look at how beautiful this temple is. Probably it was one that Herod rebuilt. And Jesus just gets really Honest, not that he was never honest, but he was super straightforward. And something gets pulled up and out of him, and he prophesies the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, Not one stone is going to be left unturned. And they're like, probably I'm putting myself put yourself in the disciples' shoes. I'm like, look at these beautiful buildings, Jesus. All of a sudden, yeah, guess what? Not one stone is gonna be left unturned. And so he just walks on, and he we find him in Matthew 24 and 25 sitting across. From Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, some people call this the Olivet Discord. He just put yourself in the story. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples come and say, "Hey Jesus, can you unpack what you just said a little bit?" And they ask him this question. They said, "When is all this going to be? When is all this going to happen? And what are the signs of the end of the age, and what are the signs of your return? What are things going to be like when the temple gets destroyed?" And by the way, so they ask him like a twofold or threefold question. They're saying, When is the temple going to get destroyed? And by the way, if you're going to unpack that, why don't you just tell us what things are going to be really like when you come again and you return? So they had this amazing question. All of Matthew 24 is Jesus answering that question. All of Matthew 25 is Jesus answering that question. So Lord, I just pray that you give us ears to hear, whether we're reading this for the first time or umpteenth time, we get to sit in on the creator of the universe, the, the alpha and the omega, the one that created everything and literally is holding everything together before he goes to the cross, foretelling the future. And it's so applicable to our times right now. And he unpacks several very simple, straightforward, and clear signs of the times. Anybody remember what some of those are? Don't shout me down. Is that a real thing? Do people still say that, Brad? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> but do you guys remember any of the signs that Jesus talked about? Nations rising against nations. And that word for nations was ethnos or ethnic group. Have we seen ethnic tension and conflict in the past eh, year and a half, two years? Global, globally, right? Um, famines. Earthquakes, uh, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence. Ooh, damn. Did you say that, Dan? What does pestilence mean? Epidemics, plagues. Uh, Passion Translation says horrible epidemics. Have we seen any horrible... I mean, have we ever lived through times like this before? Um, And he said, oh, by the way, that's just the beginning of birth pains. Then he goes on, and he gets even more clear. He says there's going to be persecution. People are going to hate you. People are going to imprison you. People are going to kill you. And, um, And I shared last week, if you haven't heard, Heidi Baker recently, she's been out of the country for a long time, about 18, 19 months. But in September, she was sharing at a church in Florida and just you you won't see this in the news, but if you Google it, you'll find it. Mozambique Christians are systemically or what systematically? That's the word I was looking for. Being targeted and killed, their villages are being burned, children are being maimed and executed in front of their parents, and this is right in her province. I mean, it's right now. This is like now time. This is not 20 years ago. This is not. This is like right now. Um, and she had a very powerful, very sobering message about. And she called it "It's wake-up time for America." Um, and so persecution, famines, pestilence. Then Jesus talks about the um, prophecy of Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation. We're not going to get into that, but um, we talked a little bit about that and what that meant. And if you if you want to get the notes, that their notes are still online. So he leads all of that. Then he talks about what things are going to be like right before he comes. He talks about. The sign of him coming on the clouds with great power and majesty and how everyone in the planet is going to be overwhelmed. They're going to see him. It's not going to be a hidden thing. And then, so he gives all these external pressures and crises and global events. One part of Matthew 24, he says, the distress of those times are going to be unlike any other time in history up until now. And he says, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of my bride and my family, those times will be cut short. And then he says, right after those times, the sun's going to turn dark, the moon's not going to shine, stars are going to fall from the sky, and then the Son of Man's going to appear in the heavens. Everyone's going everyone's gonna to see him. He's gonna, there's. So he just unpacks super, super clear, and then he talks about these, un, these external pressures, and then the whole point, and he says, so with this in mind... He, kicks, he starts heading towards Matthew 25 in these three parables, but before he gets there, he, he exhorts us. He's so kind. He's so loving. He exhorts us to cultivate heart internal attitudes, and he, cultivate, he tells us to cultivate endurance. Those who stand firm to the end will be saved, and that word endurance we talked a little bit about last week is an expression of love. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love is ready to stand up under everything and everything that comes without faltering. So he's really calling for his followers in the earth during that time to cultivate a type of love that expresses itself in endurance. But endurance wasn't the only thing. He talked about watchfulness and being ready. We talked very briefly last week about that watchfulness is both external. We're called to be aware of the seasons In the times, Jesus gave us very clear indications of the seasons, times, but he also said, by the way, no one knows the hour or the day. So he's giving giving very clear indications of the weather pattern, spiritually speaking, but he says, by the way, he also puts a disclaimer, no one knows the exact day on which it's going to snow the hour in which it's going to snow. Does that make sense? So we're as the body of Christ called to walk in light, to know the signs and the seasons, the times and seasons, but no one knows the exact day or hour. He said, so as a result of that, be watchful, be alert, be anticipating, be expectant." And one of the things that I love about Jesus is that whatever he calls us to cultivate, he's the source of that. He's the vine. We are the branch. So if he's calling us to cultivate endurance, it's not a call for me to look inwardly at myself and look how weak and hate myself and condemn myself and or to drive myself to just endure. It's a call to take my cold, barren, wandering heart, put it before the flame of Jesus and draw out of him endurance, draw out of him enduring love, draw out of him watchfulness. If I don't understand something that he's calling me to, it's an invitation for me to bring my questions and bring everything that I'm not to him and draw out of him everything that he's calling me to be over time. Does that make sense? So um, that's what I love about him is that he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That includes reading the Bible. Apart from him, we can't even understand these passages. But if we invite him into our reading and our devotion times and have him come alongside of us like he did to the followers on the road to Emmaus, he will talk to us through the Holy Spirit. He will open our hearts and minds to understand Scripture and to give us wisdom. And the end result was that we're going to have burning hearts. That's like probably you've heard me say that over and over again. So all of that leads up to Matthew 25. He says, right before Matthew 25, he says, who then is the wise and faithful servant? He's saying, be watchful, be enduring, cultivate perseverance, cultivate expectancy. Um, And then he says, and then he talks about a servant in his master's house who is faithful and wise. And he said, it will be, let me just read this to you, um, Matthew 24. 24, starting at verse 45. Does anybody want to read that? It's about five or six verses. Anybody want to read that? Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. You can listen along, but if anybody has a burning desire to read, I will bring the microphone over to you. Brad?
1: All right. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master has made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah,
0: so that's a pretty heavy-duty story, but Jesus compares two types of servants. He said, who is wise and faithful servant? And he said, the wise servant is the person who is taking care of the master's household and being wise, being a good steward, and feeding the household at the appropriate time. And he said, when the master comes back, that servant is going to be blessed. And we talked a little bit about this word, blessed. It's super religious. We don't go around using it, but it's an incredibly beautiful word. It means fortunate, happy, extremely joyful, to be envied. How many of you want to be envied in God, what biblical envy is all about? Jesus says the wise and faithful servant, if they cultivate wisdom and faithfulness along with the other qualities, that servant at the end of all things when everything is sized properly and we see things really clearly and we stand before him that person is going to be so fortunate and happy they're going to be envied i don't know about you guys but that provokes me i don't i may not understand what jesus is saying but i want to live my life in a way so that when i stand before him i want to be fortunate happy and to be envied if jesus says that's what blessed means that's i want i want that um and then he compares the foolish or the wicked servant who, because of the delay of the master's return, starts abusing the household of the master, starts treating them harshly, starts partying, and just loses heart and lives for the moment. And he says, that servant, is it's not going to go so well when the master returns. So all of that leads up to Matthew 25. So he's asking the question. He's giving signs of the times. He's saying, cultivate endurance, Cultivate wisdom, cultivate faithfulness, cultivate expectancy, cultivate wisdom and faithfulness. And these are all, I share all these because I just say we go to him to cultivate that. Those are not qualities we produce in and of itself. But Jesus has deposited his life in us, the very life of God, in order for us to draw on him and to cultivate those kinds of qualities. So let, that brings us up to Matthew 25. I'm just going to read the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, starting in Matthew 25, verses 1. He said this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven would be like ten virgins, or bridesmaids, some translation says, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. and They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. While they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you. One translation says, most plainly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Lord, we ask Jesus, you said this so many times, particularly in Revelation, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Come, Holy Spirit, magnify Jesus and his, and his words to us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this, what I'm sure most of you guys have all heard this. Has, there, has, has anyone never heard this story before? I don't want to embarrass you, but I guess I am embarrassing you, so how many of you have heard this story before? Probably since you were little kids. How many of first time you've ever heard this story? Okay. Sometimes when we hear things, we grow kind of familiar with them, right? And so sometimes we need a fresh take on them. So that's why I'm asking the Lord, what are you saying to us in this hour? What stands out to you just at a high level upon reading this parable over again? Just let's have a quick little dialogue before we dive in. Just in the title, I think we can just look
2: at... the people as characters in this parable, but this is a bridegroom and a bride, like expecting to be married and just the, at the end, just saying, I don't know you is just so powerful when, you know, these people were going to get married, like going to the wedding banquet. And then just the, I don't even know you is so powerful in that context of it's, it's Yeah. It's, it's much more drastic than just, who are you? You were late. It's like these people who thought they were going to be married to the bridegroom are like strangers. So it's just crazy. I don't necessarily
1: have like a clear thing, but I think it's like really easy for me. Like if I was in that situation, I'd be like, sure, you can have some of my oil. Like it would feel selfish to keep it for myself. But I feel like it's just like, that's not what it says. And so it's just like, it's like really easy to be like, oh, like, Alice, they were all like, oh, make sure you get oil. But, like, no, like, you're going to get married. Like, you're just going to get your own oil. Like, I think it kind of takes your own responsibility of, like, you're not responsible for everyone else's oil. It's just, like, you are responsible for your own, like, relationship with Jesus.
0: Yeah, so good. Anybody else? Thank you, Abby. Anybody else? Any other things that just stand out to you?
1: John, this is one wedding I don't want to miss. I ain't gonna miss, okay. But the thing that really, really stands out to me is that it's kind of like a little bit of like Ab- Abby said. You, nobody else can get you there. You can't go on your parents' boots, You've got to go because of your relationship. And I think that one of the things that I know about in my life, as I've seen other people, even members of my own family, and my dad thinking about right now, it was a wait and see approach. And you can't wait and see on this nor do you want to wait and see because of what we got on this side. It's not just about heaven. It's about being born again now and having God with you now. And this story is just, it highlights to me as a Christian, it convicts me what I need to do to point others to Christ. That's good, Tom. Thank you. Anybody else? So good.
0: What's so funny What's so funny Brad you were Oh. Like like you yes. <laughs> yes door what's behind door one <laughs> yeah. door two um don't, I don't to point one way one way one way there's really only two Types of heart responses in this parable there's wise and there's foolishness, and there's really no other options in Jesus's economy. And if you go further down in the chapter, he talks about the wise and foolish investors, and then he sums it up and he talks about the sheep and the goats. There's really only two choices, and I know that I like lots of choices in my life. Our culture, we like to have lots of choices. But in Jesus' book, there's really only two heart responses. So again, in the midst of the, in, let's just break this down and, and, and walk through some of this. Lord, help me. Yeah, just help me. Verse 1 says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So I do like discussion. But again, to be super repetitive, at what time? What are we talking about? Jesus says, at that time. When he comes back. So remember what he said in chapter 20 at the very beginning. This is all part of the disciples' answer. The disciples said, Jesus, what are things going to be like? What are the signs? What are things going to be like when the temple is destroyed and at the end of the age when you come again? So I'm paraphrasing. So Jesus is still unpacking his heart to his followers so at the end of the age prior to Jesus' coming in the midst of all these external world pressures and crisis and cosmic events and global geopolitical pressures and national stuff Jesus is saying during that time during that season on the earth the kingdom of God what's the kingdom of God Kingdom of God is very simply the rulership of Jesus being expressed in and through you, human beings on the earth. It's it one day the kingdom of God is going to be physical on the planet that the kingdom of God the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and God. The hallelujah chorus, right? You guys for real, one day the very culture of heaven is going to be the norm culture on the earth. A child is going to be, it says in Isaiah, is going to be able to put his hand in a viper, in a snake's nest, and not be bitten. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. That culture of heaven is going to be the normal culture, the kingdom of God. And a kingdom is an expression of the personality and character and nobility of the king, right? The king, when you think about a kingdom, it's what the king likes how he leads, and what he doesn't like, and all of that internal qualities is expressed externally in the rulership and government of how he administers his kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the rulership. It's the culture. It's, it's the king expressing his rulership in humans in our hearts. So at the end of the age, in the time and season that we're literally in now, that we're really in now, the kingdom of heaven is going to be compared. One of the models, one of the paradigms, one of the lenses is a wedding. It's a, it's a marriage. Before it's all said and done, the, the church is going to see herself, not the only way, but she's going to see herself. They're going to see Jesus and the whole gospel as a love story. We're going to see Jesus as a bridegroom, king, and judge. We've done pretty good about the king. We've done pretty good about the judge. But the church still has yet, in my opinion, to really see herself through this bridal lens or bridal paradigm. And that's one of the things, one of the ways that Jesus is going on record, saying my kingdom is going to be known as through this lens of a bridegroom getting married to a bride. And all through the Old Testament, All through the Old Testament, God gives hints. He says in Isaiah 62, let's start in Jeremiah 3, he says to Israel, he says, "'Return, O backsliding children,' says the Lord, "'for I am married to you.'" The Old Covenant was meant to be a type of marriage covenant. He says in Isaiah 62, "'No longer will they call you deserted.'" He's talking to Jerusalem, he's talking to us. "'No longer will they call you deserted or forsaken.'" Or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hebzibah, which means, "My delight is in her, and your land will be called Beulah, which literally means "married. For the Lord will take delight, the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I love Hosea, too. I haven't read this in a long time. Hosea 2:19 through20. Look at the cross through this lens. This is God going on record through the prophet Isaiah, speaking to his people. I will betroth you to me forever. Do you know what betrothal means? It means like being engaged, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. I will engage you. I will give myself, and you will give yourself to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You guys, that's what the cross is all about. That when Jesus died on the cross, he well, we're gonna get, we're gonna talk a little bit about this. That he was paying the bridal price. He was paying injustice and faithfulness, so that we can betrothed not not just so that our sins can be forgiven. Yes, absolutely, so that our sins can be forgiven and that we can escape hell but more than that that our sins can be forgiven that we can escape hell that we can be clothed in the very righteousness and splendor of Jesus so that we can rule by his side for his, with as his companion forever and ever and ever and ever Amen. that's what is in the heart of God that's one of the aspects of God as bridegroom as king and judge. All three are important, but we're talking about bridegroom here right now. Matthew verse nine, Jesus identifies himself as the Old Testament bridegroom God. He says, some teachers of the law came up to him and they said, one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and said, hey, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests, he pulled, you know, he pulls this paradigm, this wedding marriage thing up from the Old Testament. He says, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. What is he talking about? He's talking about this paradigm of seeing the gospel as a love story of Jesus' followers across the planet during the pressures of the end times, seeing Jesus as, as this bridegroom who's been taken away for him and they long for him and there's this homesickness in their heart. That's going to be an expression in the body of Christ globally during the end times is that we're going to fast not to twist God's arm to get him to do stuff, although there are biblical precedents for that. There are times to humble ourselves and fast God and fast and seek his face, but there's another kind of fast that we just, when you love somebody deeply when you really, really care for them and you enjoy their presence and they're not there, you ache and there's a homesickness inside of you and you look at their pictures, you go through the photo albums, you look at the text, you go through the voicemail messages and you remind yourself of who they are and what they're like. And you guys, the body of Christ, before it's all said and done, and you were a part of this, is going to ache and long for Jesus. And one of the primary ways that the book of Revelation at the very end of the New Testament describes the church is not as an army, it's not as servants, it's not even as sons and daughters. Although All those are legitimate and all of those are good. But the primary way at the very last book of the Bible describes the church is as what? As a bride. It says this in Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Revelation 21, 9 through 11. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the army of the Lord. It's not what he says. I'll come and I'll show you the servants of the Lord come and i'll show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god it's shone with the very glory of god and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel paul saw the gospel through this lens he says in second corinthians he's talking to the corinthian believers he says i am jealous for you with the very jealousy of God. Yeah. I promised, or I be one translation says, I betrothed you as a pure bride or virgin to one husband, Christ. You guys, we have no clue. We have no clue who this man is that gave his life and what is in his heart towards us. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to have ongoing encounters with a holy not an insecure, jealous bridegroom, but a holy, jealous bridegroom that wants not just to forgive us, but wants to possess us <laughs> as his inheritance. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes, not very often, sometimes I'm, I'll pray, Lord, would you please and just give me a glimpse of your holy jealousy over me? What if our holiness and our sanctification was more motivated out of a homesickness and a lovesickness and feeling the holy jealousy of Jesus over our lives rather than teeth gritting, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. I've got to stay away from this because I know it's wrong. You know, what if our holiness and growth and sanctification was fueled and motivated by that anyway? Um, so, this whole bridal thing is part of it. This is the whole thing that Jesus says at that time. I believe he's prophesying and he's promising at that time, in this season of the earth, the kingdom of God's gonna be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. Um, I just wanna feel free to ask, interject, whatever, but I'm just gonna run through a couple things that stand out to me, and then we'll just try and apply it, okay? A couple things. Um, before, let me just say this. Has anyone ever studied a Jewish wedding, with what Jewish weddings were like back in Jesus' times? Trudy has. Trudy, you want to give a real brief synopsis? Here, oh, someone said, oh boy, here we go. Who said
2: that? I do not think brevity is one of my vocabulary words. Okay, the Jewish custom, and this is what you have to keep in mind. Jesus is addressing a bunch of Jewish people and their culture. And so the Jewish wedding feast was, or the whole thing of marriage was divided into three sections. So when the young man would find his bride, he would, they would meet with the family, and they would have a contract made, and this is who I'm going to marry, okay? So then, let's pretend that's Nick. So now Nick has to go prepare a place, and he goes back home to his parents' home and either adds on to the house or makes space in the house for his bride. And sometimes this, I think the typical time frame was like a year it took for him to do that. In the meantime, you had... Uh, the bride who was betrothed, and in that culture, that meant basically you were already promised, you were engaged, you were in some ways married, but it wasn't consummated, and so this is why you had the whole drama with Joseph and Mary, and he said, "Oh man, I'm going to have to divorce you and all of that," because that it was it was more than just being engaged, seriously, and so. During this year, you have your bridesmaids. Now think about this. How old do you think Mary was when she was engaged to Joseph? What are the age regions you think she was? Okay, 13 to 20. Some people say like 13 to 15. So you're talking about a bunch of adolescent kids kind of. You know, and so there, that's another interpretation of the word virgins, that they were young, they were adolescents. So um, these, these girls had to be ready for a whole year, and they'd wait and they'd wait, and then all of a sudden, when everything was all prepared, the groomsmen and Nick and Nick's father would all come like running in the middle of the night to tell the bride, here he comes. Now they would send a forerunner to uh, prepare a little bit, I think, because you have to realize those parents had to have like a week-long wedding. They had to have a little bit of of foreknowledge he was coming. and, And so you can compare that to all of the things when Jesus said, these will be the signs of my coming. Well, he had, they had signs too. So then all of a sudden, all this commotion in the middle of the night, there's dancing, there's tambourines, there's everything going on, and all of these girls have to wake up, and they have to get their torches. And at that time, they thought they were mainly uh, torches rather than actual lamps and candles. And so you had to wet these rags in oil put them on like a little cup and set that on fire and be ready to run out there and lead the prey to the bride's house so you know some of the girls probably were ready every every day they're they're you know being obedient and ready and then you had these kids after months and months thinking you know I had oil when I was asked to be a bridesmaid I'm all but um so that's kind of this, you know, so that's what the bread, the, the wedding feasts were like at that time. So John will elaborate on all of that. Anything else? Nick, do you want to add anything? Oh, yeah. Abby, did you? Oh, how long was the wedding? Yeah. A week. Yeah, seven
0: days. Nick, is there anything you want to add? Sure. So thank you, Trudy. You. That was, I haven't studied the Jewish wedding in a long time, but I went back and read through it. And one of the things, a couple things stood out to me. Typically, it was not our culture, oftentimes the father searched for the bride. He, if you look in the book of Genesis, when Abraham was looking for a bride for his son Isaac, he sent out a servant to search for her. And when they found her, you guys, there's so many incredible parallels, so many incredible parallels. Holy Spirit is searching for, the Holy Spirit is moving on the earth today. What if... What if AOX became a community in which evangelism was a we joined with the Holy Spirit to see people through the lens of a bridegroom, of a bridegroom being married to Jesus? And what if we saw people through the lens of this jealous bridegroom for them and our discipleship making and that we were giving of our life and time and energy because we were partnering with Holy Spirit to see people called up and out and how calling them into how Jesus sees them as part of his global bride. I mean, so the father searches for the bride. They bring the two together and they have a contract and they pay something called the bridal price. Some people might have called it a dowry, but they literally, particularly in agricultural society where, um, Anyway, they paid the bridegroom or the bridegroom's father paid a bridal price and it was expensive because you were you were it was it was an expensive price. You guys if you look at the cross and the covenant that he cut in his own blood to save us, that was the down payment. That was the bridal price that he paid to win our hearts, to not only forgive our sins but to have us by his side forever and ever throughout eternity. Bridal price. And then they would have a cup of wine in celebration in an agreement. And they would have a cup of wine. Jesus had the cup of wine at the last supper, and every time we celebrate communion, it's the cup of wine saying, we won't, we'll have this again when we see each other. And and the bridegroom would depart for up to a year, and he would go back to his father's house, and he would prepare a bridal chamber or their apartment or their house, whatever you would want to call it. Oftentimes, it was a room inside the father's house. Oftentimes, it was a room next to the father's house. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you in my father's house are not many houses much man, so are many rooms you guys you know what he's doing right now i don't know but hey i know that janine i love janine i know that she likes knitting he's probably picking out the best yarn for janine putting it in her part of the house i'm kind of not joking but i'm trying to be funny Why did he put inside of you certain interests and likes and passions and things that make your heart come alive? Those are deposits of his character and expression in you so that one day when you see him and you take your place by his side and we're ruling the Father's kingdom together, he knows what you like. He made you. He created you. He's storing up. He's preparing. And the bridegroom would make this beautiful, elaborate bridal chamber and it was only when the father saw it and it was done the father said now it's time go get your bride and he would travel from the father's house with his groomsmen with his friends and he would they would travel and as as Trudy said they would send forerunners and they would shout and because it was fun the idea was they were engaged and when they had that betrothal period they were married except for being consummated it was they were married it was a legal binding thing and the 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 responsibility of the bride The bride was to gather her friends together and wait expectantly, get everything together, be ready, be expected, not to lose heart and to have everything ready and be prepared to go. Because in that that day, it was fun to come at midnight, come when they didn't expect them and have a big party. They would light these lamps and have a big procession. As part of the culture, it was a fun thing. And it was kind of like the bridegroom was stealing away his bride. It was a fun thing expression of romance and excitement and adventure and it was fun and so that's why Jesus gave all these signs but he also said be ready because no one knows the hour or the the day only my father in heaven knows it so so much beautiful nuances so much beautiful things to pull out of this thing a couple things that stands out to me is that he said that there were wise and foolish bridesmaids if you study the word wisdom It literally means how we size things up. Literally. Wisdom, if you study the Greek word, it it, it literally is an inner evaluation, this inner perception, this inner seeing or this inner knowing and perception of how things really are. Does that make sense? And if you dig in and and, and really want to get nerdy, it comes from this Greek word and the root word, Behind the English word diaphragm, which is like which is control, and it was meant. Let me just read this. It's it the diaphragm. They viewed it in that in that culture as controlling key internal bodily functions from the inside out. So wisdom comes from this word that connects to the word diaphragm, and it's it's an inner perception, it's an inner knowing that's on the inside, but it's controlling outward behavior. It's, it's an inner knowing, I'm repeating myself because I really want you to get this, <laughs> because to me, it's really, really beautiful, and it's a gift from God, and it's something that he's asking us to cultivate while we wait for him. Biblical wisdom is an inner intelligence, an inner knowing, and an inner seeing that regulates and impacts our outward behavior, how we conduct our day-to-day lives. I love that. Um, Paul prayed, well, well, I won't get to that yet, a lamp. Anybody remember how Jesus defined lamps? Anybody? He was talking about, in Matthew chapter 6, he was talking about money and don't store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Um, He said, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust can steal and kill, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And here's what he says says Matthew, remember, he's talking about greed, and he's talking about um, what we really prize. He says, "Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy." This is Matthew 6:19-23. "But store for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Verse 22. "The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So incredible. What an amazing... Here's the creator of the universe, how he created your body, your soul, your mind, and your spirit, telling you how you were designed to operate. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes, your lamps, are unhealthy or dark, your whole body will be full of darkness. The eye or the lamp, I think you can have a couple different takes on it. Um, the Passion Translation defines the eye or the lamp as spiritual perception, my take on it is that it has to do with our desires. It has to do with what we really are reaching for and dreaming about and longing for. And when when everything is quiet in your life, when everything and and you've got time to think about things, what do you dream about? What do you fantasize about? If you were to answer this question, and I mentioned this last week, if I only had blank, if I only had blank, my life would be full and complete. Fill in the blank. That to me is one way of looking at your lamp, your internal eyes. It's what we long for. Jesus said, it's your treasure. What are you treasuring the most? What am I treasuring? If I I'll be honest with you, I just kind of really want to have a night. I want to have enough of Jesus and have a comfortable life. I want to have a nice retirement. I want to have more vacations on the beach. I want to, when, when it's time for me to go, I want to die with all my children and grandchildren around me. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm not being silly or facetious, but those are the normal, comfortable, carnal things that I dream about. And I and I and I hope for Jesus is saying, get your eyes fixed on things above. If if your eye is noble, if your desires and your treasure is on fixed on good things, if they're healthy things, then your whole body will be full of light. Um, Jesus said, I don't know if that's making sense or not, but if. The, if my lamp, if my internal knowing is fixed on Christ, and I'm asking for that to become what I'm really dreaming about, to really know him, to be by his side, he says that your whole body will be full of life. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna shape the direction of your life. It's gonna it's gonna shape the whole trajectory of your life. Um Psalms 119.37 says, Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. I think many times in my life I, I came to a realization that what I was really thinking about and dreaming about and what I was desiring in the deepest places of my heart were not, how, not what the Bible says to line up with. I mean, um, there were many, many, many years where I was just addicted to pornography And I remember being so disheartened and discouraged um, and feeling like I could never have healthy eyes, the eyes of my heart being really healthy. It just felt hopeless. And the Lord just really encouraged me over many, many, many years. He said, just continue to bring those things to me. Invite me into those dark places. And he gave me Psalm 20, verse 12, says, ears to hear And eyes to see, both are gifts from the Lord. So if we really want to have eyes or lamps that are good, as Jesus said, we just, we continually ask for that. To have spiritual eyes that are awakened and spiritual lamps that are good and fixed on Christ, we just simply turn that into conversation and prayer. Does that make sense? Um, Revelation 3, verse 18, Jesus said to the church, I counsel you to buy gold from me refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's not talking about physical eyes. He's talking about the eyes of our heart, which he said, is the lamp. He wants our lamp to be shining brightly, and we use, we just simply ask him. Do you remember the story where Jesus healed the blind guy? Remember what he did? What did he do, Brad? He sp- Which uh, he, Yeah, he spit. He spit in the mud, rubbed the mud together, and put it on the guy's eyes. To me, that's a picture of Jesus putting salve on his eyes. It says in Psalm 45 that his lips are anointed with grace. So we bring our unhealthy lamps, our dark lamps, if we encounter that, oh, I'm I'm fixing on things that are not good and healthy. We bring those to him in grace and mercy. And we ask Jesus to put his word on our eyes and to use the word of God as salve. And over time, he'll cultivate healthy eyes. He'll cultivate new desires that are meant to light up the entire direction of our life. Does that make sense? So your eyes are your lamps. What's, what do you think the oil means? And oh, before we get to that, Jesus said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took, who, were, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I was reading that, and it was like, I don't usually get a lot of this, but I just felt so strongly to say, you guys, one day you're going to bring your lamps before the bridegroom, and he's going to inspect our lamps. Your lamps, Jesus said, are the eyes of your heart. And he said, whatever, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. So lamps, treasures, desires, really longing for this one that longs for us. One day we're going to bring our hearts, our lamps before the bridegroom. What, how are we cultivating our internal lamps? How are we cultivating, how are we stewarding the desires of our heart? We talked a couple weeks ago at Life in the Grove, we talked about this ache and longing in our hearts for beauty. God put within the human heart this unquenchable longing and ache for beauty, for other things, for adventure, for success, other things. But what if the ache for beauty was really a stamp of God on our hearts, meant for us to learn how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to steward that ache for beauty and bring that ache for beauty continually over and over and over to the Lord as the source of fulfillment of that ache. Does that make sense? I'm having a hard time describing what I'm seeing, but these lamps, these longings and desires that every one of us have, if I were to ask each and every one of you, what are you secretly dreaming for? It might be a relationship, It might be the perfect husband. It might be the perfect spouse. It might be finances or a job. It might be if I could only get out of this difficult season in my life and all will be really well. I think what Jesus is up to, and I'm having a hard time putting in words, is that he's wanting to bring all of those lesser desires to the surface of our life and have us continually offer them up to him. And in the place of those desires, not that they're bad. I mean, some might be bad and that we need to really repent of and bring to the light and confess of, confess and take ownership of. But I think he's wanting to dislodge every other thing that's competing for him as the primary fulfillment of those desires and longings in our heart. I believe that's what this whole bridal paradigm is about, that he is a bridegroom that is jealous and wholeheartedly committed to wholehearted love. And he is committed to cultivating a bride and have an expression of his bride and family on the earth that equally shares and is growing in wholehearted love to him as she receives it and gives it back to him. And the pressures of the signs of the times are meant in his wisdom to dislodge from our heart any other thing that we're feeding our lamps with. He's meant to dislodge. You guys, look what COVID's done just in the past two years. Every little thing on the planet that we hold dearly has been shaken to the core because we're receiving a bridegroom in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Every pain, every discomfort, everything that we go through, if we ask, he will use that to cultivate a lamp that is fixed on things above, treasures above. He's looking to dislodge lesser treasures, lesser lovers, lesser desires, I don't want to say and get rid of them, just put them in their proper orbit. Does that make sense? If he's not at the blazing center, then everything else flies out of orbit. My sexuality, my greed, my... my. Desire for success, my desire to be validated and firm, all throws out of order and they become gods in and of themselves. And when Jesus becomes the blazing center, just like the, the sun is at the center of the galaxy, every other thing finds its proper place in proper alignment around him. Zechariah was the prophet. Well, no, he wasn't a prophet, he was a prophet. But wasn't John the Baptist dad Zechariah? He said when when he when he got his speech back, he said to John the Baptist when he was able to speak again, he said, You, my son, will be a prophet of the most high. And he said, He said that the dawn of heaven is about to break upon us. He said that the sunrise or the day spring. And he's this language that the one of the pictures of Jesus is this rising sun, and that he's going to reach his noontime brightness when he comes again. And everything else that hinders his kingdom, hinders his humility, hinders and opposes his justice and meekness and love will be completely done away with. And you guys, what he's doing in our life now is he's wanting to dislodge everything else that's competing for him at the center of our life, as the blazing center. Here's the good news. We can't produce that in and of ourselves. We can only bring, this is why I love Jesus so much, is he knows it. But he's exhorting us. Don't get, bring your broken lamps, bring your weak, cold heart, bring your wandering affections, bring your little faith, bring it to me over and over and over and over. And don't get tired. Keep coming back. Don't grow weary. If I'm calling you to cultivate watchfulness, if I'm calling you to have a lamp that's burning, if I'm calling you to have oil in your lamp, and we haven't even got to the oil part, if I'm calling for you to have those things, it's only through me that you'll get those things. Don't give in to condemnation. Don't give in to self-hatred. Don't give in to despising how far you feel away from the fire of my presence. Take one little step and keep taking those steps. Hit delete, confess, own the stuff Hit delete, bring it out in the light, and just keep moving forward and forward and forward and forward. That's what he's calling us to do. It's, the, it's in the little hidden movements that nobody else sees, the movements of our heart towards him that move his heart so deeply. He says to Song of Solomon, he said to the bride in Song of Solomon, he says, with one look of your eyes, one little Authentic, genuine glance of your heart's eyes, your lamp to his says, ravishes my heart. It steals his heart away and fills him with intense affection. And all we are feeling on our end is bored, dullness, wandering, falling asleep, Bible devotional times. And we don't even see what our prayers are doing to his heart from his perspective. He said to Daniel, Daniel was fasting and praying and the angel finally broke through all the spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms and the prince of Persia. And the angel finally shows up. He says, Daniel, and Daniel fasted 21 days didn't feel anything. You remember what the angel said to him? He said, Daniel, from the very moment you started to pray, your prayers were heard. You guys, when you pray out of weakness and humility and a cold, barren heart, and you're reaching into his heart, and you're bringing your lamp to him, asking for oil. Your prayers are going up to the very control center of the universe, and they're being heard by a bridegroom God who's filled with intense passion and affection. And we think, because I'm not walking around with that 24-7, that I am immature, and God's not looking at it, or I'm, or I'm rebellious, or I, and I need to give in to condemnation and self-hatred. And the Lord said, no. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in the Bible, was giving alms, and he was giving prayers, and the angel said, your prayers and your alms have ascended into God's presence as a fragrant, freaking offering. You guys, your weak prayers right now, I know it's... I just was seeing if you were still awake. Your prayers, your weak prayers that you despise and that I despise and we're so prone to look down upon, go up through the atmosphere somehow into the very presence of God. They are filling the bowls of heaven, these incense, and they're fragrant, they're pleasing to him. And the oil, so that's the lamps, that's the wisdom, that's all of that, and... The oil, very, very quickly, is a picture of the Holy Spirit giving living revelation into the worth and wonder and nobility of your bridegroom. The Holy Spirit is pictured throughout the Bible as oil sometimes. Oil was used to anoint people and set them apart in the Old Testament. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming on them. And in the Book of Revelation, and the in the throne room description, that there are in right in the center of the throne, there are the Holy Spirit is described. I'll just read this Revelation four five. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the these are the seven spirits of God. Very clear. It's not a mystery. Seven expressions of the Holy Spirit, and Isaiah 11, 1-3 tells us what that is. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, talking about Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and the delight of the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the full, complete fullness of God and when and the oil is a picture of the holy spirit filling and touching these internal lamps these internal tre- this internal longings and desires and it's the holy spirit filling us and touching us with oil in due time in due season and bringing this holy combustion this holy flame before us the holy jesus said In John 16, 13 through 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's one of his favorite things he loves to do is reveal the personality and the character, the beauty, the worth, the humility, the power, the strength, the joy of Jesus to human hearts. It's God revealing God to the human heart. That's what oil is. It's growing in the knowledge, not just the mental comprehension, but the living experiential knowledge of Jesus. Um, John the Baptist, Jesus had such a beautiful description of him. I think it was John 5. Do you remember what he called John the Baptist? What did he call him, Brand? Oh, it's John 6, not John 5. Jesus, listen to this. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man born of woman. He described him as a bright and shining lamp. What was John the Mark Baptist, what was he known for? Even in the womb, when Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, came, and John was still in the womb of Elizabeth, what happened? What happened physically? What did Elizabeth... He let the Holy Spirit, this burning seven expression of the knowledge and wisdom and counts of God was inside of John the Baptist physically when he was in utero, giving him revelation of the worth and beauty and wonder of Jesus when Jesus was an embryo inside of Mary. You guys, if he'll do that for a baby in utero, how much more will he do that for us? John the Baptist had such a revelation of the worth of Jesus. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be a servant. He, had, he was blazing and he was fiery because the Holy Spirit, this eternal flame of God, that is, I don't know, it's just it's revealing the worth and preciousness and excellency of Jesus to John the Baptist. Paul, Paul the Apostle, was a blazing, shining lamp. He said, he said, it's my one desire to know him more and more and more and more. Mary of Bethany sat at Jesus' feet and just, she poured out a whole year's worth of us, a year's wages that was symbolized in this fragrant anointing oil. She poured it out on Jesus. She saw the preciousness and value of Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus Um, Jesus used the written word of God to not only take away their dullness, but he filled their heart through the word of God and through the Holy Spirit with revelation of who Jesus really is. It was living revelation. And the end of the story was that they said, we're not our hearts burning while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. You must acquire this oil for yourself. That's what Abby said. When the foolish, so the wise somehow, I just very simple, the wise bridesmaids somehow had little glimpses of the worth and preciousness of the bridegroom. They knew him at a heart level. They loved him. They enjoyed him. He was what they thought about. He was, if I only had blank, he was the fill in the blank. If he was only near to me, my life would be full and complete. This is my paraphrase. This is my take on it. And they purchased oil and were ready ahead of time. And it was, here's the thing, purchasing the oil, going to the guy who pressed the oil and sold it and getting doing all that stuff was not cumbersome to them. It was not a burden, but there was an investment. There was a personal investment of their time and their resources ahead of time. You guys, getting the knowledge, acquiring the knowledge of Jesus, salvation is free, forgiveness of our sins is free, but acquiring the oil of the knowledge of Jesus Christ requires investment of your time and energy. It's that simple. It is not free. And if you and I wanna be wise and faithful and alert, and eager, and expected, it's going to require somewhere along the lines, probably several times throughout your life, putting a stake in the ground, saying, I am going to meet with him through this word, and through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to continue to bring my weak, wandering, barely flickering lamp before him, and just set it before him, whether I feel anything or not, in humility, and faith and trust, I will bring my cold, wandering heart before him. And in due time, he will fill my lamp with oil. That's what it's all about. That's And it involves and it requires effort. It, and our flesh absolutely kicks against it every single time. I want to go to Netflix. I want to go to chips and salsa. I want to go hang out with friends and family. I could go on and on and on and talk about practical strategies, for how to do this, um, two quick things. Um, if you're struggling with your devotional times, just set it as, an, make an appointment and don't let anything else come compete with that. Just like if you have a doctor's appointment and it's on your iPhone, it's on your calendar or whatever, and your phone, if you're struggling with it, particularly, this was very helpful me on the front end, I'm just going to set this hour aside, 30 minutes, whatever. I'm going to set it aside for a season of my life and I'm going to not be available to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And just make appointment. I mean, you guys, what better appointment than with the God of the universe? I mean, why do we treat him so casually and flippantly? Like, I'll, I'll catch him on the flip side when I have time. What if we were to give him the best of our time and make an appointment and just not allow anything else to come and interact and pull us away? Turn our phones off. I was going to swear, but I decided not to swear. Uh, turn the social media off. Turn the phones off. Turn the text alerts off. What more could be more important than having an appointment with the guy that runs the universe and wants to fill your lamp with oil and cause you to burn brightly? I'm just, I want to exhort you to sign back up again is what I want you to do. Um, when, you, when you finally do, do that and you find yourself in that place, get a notebook just write, if you're, I find so many times when I finally, okay, I'm quiet, got my time, going to have a quiet time, blah, 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 and I, my mind starts racing of all the things that I needed to do that day. Write them down. Mark Verkler teaches that just, that's your mind telling you these things are important, these tasks are important, these responsibilities are important. Just write them down, and when, by writing them down, you're telling your heart, okay, I got you. These are important. I'm acknowledging. I'm going to write them down, and I'm going to park them here for a little bit, then just bring your heart back to the Lord. And, and my biggest thing, my biggest, biggest thing, ask the Lord to do what Jesus did. You, just come alongside you on the road. Jesus, would you just please, I don't know how to read your word. I fall asleep with it, but would you use your written word as an on-ramp to encounter the living word? Holy Spirit, Come. Give me glimpses of the worth and beauty and majesty of Jesus as I read these printed words. May they escort me to encounter the one that I'm reading about. Turn it into like a family photo album. Jesus, I don't have a clue when I'm reading this. Would you just come alongside me and give me ears to hear? Would you unpack your story to me? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think by searching them, they're going to give you eternal life. You guys, the scriptures, he said, point to me. Everything, every type and shadow in the Old Testament, everything points to Jesus. Just say, Jesus, it's all about you. Help me. Even if it's one sentence or one word, he he just inspires. It's better than not having any inspiration. Um, I brought, you can pick these up, but I brought, some of you have gotten these before through Life in the Grove. But this little booklet, if you want one, they're here for you to take, is about 30, 25 to 30 years ago, I found my flesh really kicking against my quiet times. I knew they were important and I wanted to grow in them and I wanted to turn Bible reading into encounters with Jesus. And this little booklet is about promises and scriptures and me just putting the stake in the ground and learning how to grow in weakness, turning the word of God into encountering Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So if you want one, they're there. I hope they encourage you. I hope they inspire you. So many times I have to go back and say, Oh yeah, this, this is a promise. Um, let me just close with this. You guys still okay? I'll just paraphrase it. Second Peter I think it's chapter one. Second Peter, chapter 1. One time I found myself in a parking lot outside of work. I was trying to have my quiet time. This was a long time ago when I was working for Sandy Koch and Janine. And I was angry and I was frustrated. God, I'm setting this time aside. Why do you make why do you make seeking you and spending time with you so hard? That was the complaint in my heart. It wasn't verbal. And I was trying to fast as well. Fasting is an expression of buying oil, too. We haven't even talked about that. Um, and I was complaining to the Lord almost quietly, and the Lord just cut through all my self-pity, and he had me in Romans. We're not going to go there, but in the verse was, if, he, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up, how much more will he give us all things? And the, the Lord was saying, John, if I've already gone through and paid the bridal price of it having you engaged me, I gave the very, the very life of my son, how much more in due time and due season will you experience fruitfulness and fire in your devotional times and joy in due time. But you just got to put the time in because when you put the time in, what you don't realize is I'm excavating underneath the surface and clearing out stuff and creating new root systems so that you can sustain the life and the deposit that I want to put into you in due time. It just takes a little time on front. And there are different seasons where it does feel boring. And, and, but anyway, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power, God's divine power has given us Everything we need, absolutely everything we need for a godly life. That godly life means a noble, it means a godlike life. A good and beautiful and successful life that looks like, smells like, acts like Jesus under pressure. Everything that we absolutely need. He is not holding out on us whatsoever. The enemy loves to come in and lodge this complaint. He's holding out on you. He makes it hard. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge. That word is experiential, living revelation of him. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, everything that we absolutely need is already in the bank account. We're just learning how to write checks. We're learning how to take what's already been deposited in our spiritual bank account, bank account, bank account, (laughs) And through our knowledge and our devotional times and encountering Jesus at a heart level, we are learning how to become sons and daughters and become the bride of Christ under pressure, especially during this time and this this pressure-filled time that we're in. He's given to us a godly life, everything we need for godly life, through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these... Through the knowledge of him, through his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Where has he recorded his promises? In his written word. Listen to this. He, through these, through our knowledge of him, through his call to us, to his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You guys, what if your Bible times became a divine, a lifelong treasure hunt of using the written word of God to become a stakeholder in the very glory of God's own character and his divine nature? What if the written word of God through grace and humility in the Holy Spirit became a means and a tool by which we actually are dipping our toes in the very endless water of God's character and nature and his radiance and his glory, that we're becoming a participant in his nature. Let's pray. Brad, do you want to say anything before we pray?
1: Um, first of all, I want you to hang tight with me for just a second, but John, thank you. Um, whenever we were, uh, the first week I was away, I had a conversation with John, and I felt like, um, this message that has been started, <laughs> thank you so much, uh, is really important. Um, it's foundational, and we're in a season as a community, as a church family, uh, where we need to be called to our attention back to the foundational things. Um, I believe there's a time of, that God wants to, to build, but I think that this... Um, Message today, I almost stopped you like three or four times and said, just stop there and let's just pray. (laughs) Um, Because I I just know there's so many things that we've heard today that I think there's a danger for us leaving here going, man, that was a great message. And we just need to park it right here. So I'm going to ask you to pray for us. So thank you. Yeah. But I want to call our attention to a couple things real quick. Number one, can we identify with what Trudy said? Will we humble ourselves to seeing ourselves as some teenage girls who sometimes struggle to stay focused? Will we humble ourselves to that place of just learning and growing and discipline? And hearing what John said, that that we give everything we can to, to make him the focus, and whenever, whenever we fail, we come back to him again. Because the enemy would want to, like, Instead of, us, instead of us hearing the invitation to keep coming back, he would want to, to speak condemnation. And this is a place, and I really, I really, one of the key things for me today is when you read those six verses from 24 when you had us read that. You know, when you hear the words of Jesus, I think sometimes in our Western church, we have reduced the gospel to be, are you going to heaven or not? And Jesus did not spend a lot of his time talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. And this message of, 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 a, of a master, this message of a king, this message of a bridegroom, um, this message of a judge who is saying, hey, if, if you're just forgetful, hear these words. He's not saying that as a condemnation. He's saying that as an invitation. He's saying he's not telling us about five foolish virgins uh, to condemn us and being foolish and being forgetful. He is highlighting the importance of this thing. So I really feel like today there's so much we could talk about, but it's, it's kind of like that consecration of the lamps, the consecration of the lamps. I was just watching in my own heart and watching some of your eyes when John was talking about what are those things that we desire? It's like, in a way, like before we even get to like getting filled with oil, let's, can we just see ourselves as those bridesmaids and just have a time where we consecrate our lamps? And then let's just pause here. Let's really give ourselves this week to God. What does this mean in my life? So we don't have to try to rush on to the next thing, right? Our culture around us Tells it's okay to kind of live in, you know, I love Jesus and I have all this other stuff. And it's easy for that other stuff to be the requirement for us to feel like we're walking good with Jesus. And and so the good things that are a blessing from him becomes become idols. So let's, would you pray with us for us? Yeah.
0: Um, at the very end of the story, uh, it was brought up earlier, is when the foolish bride maids come before him, Jesus says to them, I... He says, honestly, I just don't know who you are. I don't really know I don't have a relationship with you. I don't who are you. I'm not going to invite you into this feast and celebration. that's an intimate celebration of family and friends because I don't even have a i don't we don't have a relationship. Who are you? And so much of us what what I talked about today was us pursuing him. you guys, the real flip side and the real strength of and power to pursue him is that he wants a relationship with you. He wants to be invited into every weak area. He wants to know every dream of your heart. He wants to know every bad thought. He wants to know every weakness, every struggle. He, wants, he was born in a stable. He was born in a manger in a filthy, dirty place. He, and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were torn cloths. He wants to be, he wants to be enveloped and wrapped in the torn and broken, ripped apart places of our lives that were ripped apart by our own sin and disobedience and by the sin of others committed against us. And he wants to come into the dirty, smelly, broken places. And we want to keep, and I want to keep him at a distance. I want enough of Jesus. I don't really, if I have to admit it, I don't really want to be known by him. I just want to put on a facade. Deep down inside, I want to do life on my own terms. So let's just pray. Jesus, we come before you, and please get to know us. We offer up our lamps, our eyes. We offer up our complete being. We offer up our wandering hearts before you right now. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for wanting, forgive me, for wanting just enough of Jesus, a plan of salvation, just a Roman road Jesus where I've gone through the steps and he's become my insurance card to get out of hell. And I just pull him out whenever I need him, whenever I need assurance of forgiveness. Lord, getting out of hell and having the forgiveness of sin is absolutely beautiful, but that's just the beginning. You want to possess us. You want us to not only know you, you want to know us. And we don't know how to do that other than just bring our wandering hearts, our cold hearts, our flickering lamps, our going-out lamps before you. And would you shock? We would rather, honestly, I think everyone would say, we would rather be shocked now rather than to stand before you and be shocked. So would you come and put your finger? It says, In Psalm 45, that your lips are anointed with grace. So we don't have to be afraid of being corrected or disciplined by you because it's always marked by kindness. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, we just, as best as we know how, we put everything on the table before you. Our dreams for our future, what our lives look like, what we want our lives to look like in the future what we're hoping for, what we're dreaming for. We bring our lamps before you and we ask, Jesus, would you please give us good lamps, healthy lamps, eyes that see and ears that hear are gifts from you. Would you come and put eye salve? Would you use your word like a salve and put it over the eyes of our hearts? Would you help us to sign up once again to go the long distance, to have a vision for 20, 30, 40, 50 years of going hard after you in the difficult times and in the joyful times, and that we would be over and over and over again drawing on you for the strength and perseverance to commit to that. We receive your kindness. We receive your love. We receive your strength, your hope, We cut off condemnation and self-hatred. We, in the name of Jesus, lift up the cross of Christ over every strategy of the evil one that would want to sow hopelessness and discouragement. Lord, we offer up the very places that seem to entangle us. And we say, would you come? And even as we sang this morning, untangle us in those very places that we get so easily entangled up. Would you come? And speak hope and may they become an altar of adoration and sold out love to you. Would you come and cut us free and become the blazing center once again that we so need you to be. And put everything else in its proper orbit. Lord, thank you for this family. Thank you for this part of your bride. We love you. We receive all that you have. We receive everything that we need for life and godliness through the growing, cultivating of an intimate, experiential knowledge that you have for us through the gift of the grace and the Holy Spirit. Bless each one today in Jesus' name. Amen.